So happy to, to see you all here this morning. For those of you who are looking up and saying, oh, it, it's that guy, perhaps, uh, perhaps I should introduce myself. My name is Ken Thompson. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Uh, Trent has been gone out of the pulpit for the last 13 weeks on sabbatical, and he, he is back, but he's, he's getting ready for what is coming in the weeks to come, the next sermon series, and touching base with people. And so he will be back next week. I shared in the first service that, that my, my goal this morning uh, is to preach in such a way that you are so, just so ready for his return <laughs> next week. And because uh, we've, we've gone deep down the bench. Um, <laughs> seriously, though, I'm, I'm, I'm rarely up here on a Sunday morning in this capacity. I'm very honored to be, uh, to be preaching God's word this morning. But uh, I don't take it lightly. But it is, uh, it is confronting for me with, with all of you staring at me, all your eyes looking at me. It's... Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, <clears throat> uh, this morning, we'll be bringing a close to a summer sermon series on people of faith. Uh, we've been greatly blessed to hear from a number of pastors from our area, some right from our area and in our region, some as far away as, uh, as Baltimore, and we got to hear from our own preaching team who did a, just a tremendous job throughout the summer. And we got to focus our minds and attention on uh, just a number of great biblical characters. We looked at Paul, we looked at Timothy and Abraham and Isaac. We got to look at uh, Peter um, and the woman at the well. Uh, these stand out in my mind because I wanted to preach on them. And... Uh, <laughs> <clears throat> we got to hear about the, the rich young ruler. We got to hear about Nehemiah, Moses, David. And then last week, uh, we got to hear about Zacchaeus from Pastor Nate. Now, this morning, we'll be looking at Noah, who is referred to in the New Testament as a preacher of righteousness. I don't know whether you think uh, about Noah as a preacher of righteousness. In fact, we don't have any record of specific sermons he preached or what it was that he said, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter wrote and referred to him as a preacher of righteousness. Um, Noah was 10 generations from, uh, from Adam. So we are not too deep into human history at this point when Noah comes on the scene. His name, his name means, because names were meaningful back then, his name means rest and repose. I don't know whether any of you think about uh, the story of Noah being familiar with it. Would you think of a, that being an appropriate name for someone who, who presided over God's deliverance of people from a worldwide flood, rest and repose. So where are we going this morning? My hope is that we look at the highlights of the story and the account of the great flood 
And I wanna focus our attention on two things this morning, two themes. One of them is gonna be particularly difficult, I think, to talk about, and that is focusing on God as a God of judgment. It's not, not always the funnest thing to think about. I know I just used a word that doesn't exist. But the second thing I want us to focus on this morning is his redemption. As we consider the narrative of the story itself in Genesis chapter six through nine, I think it has for many the feel of a children's story. We, we can be guilty, don't we, or can't we be, of, of just reducing the story of Noah and the flood down to a cute children's story. I've, I've been brought up in a Christian home, and like many of you, I was introduced to the ideas about Noah, the, the story of Noah itself, from a children's Bible, a children's storybook Bible. I went this week through our nurseries to see if we had one of those one of those toy arcs, and you might have seen those before, and they're filled with plastic animals, like a giraffe with his head coming out of the roof of the ark, and there were uh, elephants and, and hippos and all kinds of animals on that. And, and I share all that because, really, if I'm being honest, the story of Noah sometimes feels like the stuff of fairy tales, doesn't it? Animals showing up two by two at an appointed time, male and female of each kind, to be preserved on a giant boat from a worldwide flood. Like so many other biblical events, it just kind of sounds too hard to believe, doesn't it? There, there are many naysayers who hear the miraculous story found in these chapters and they either flatly deny it ever happened or they see it as something that was limited in scope, a local flood with a few animals that were saved from this local flood. And it was put in there and placed in there in the Bible as an object lesson to teach to the people of faith something about God. It's hard to believe. It's just one of those things It's hard to believe, especially if one takes God out of the picture or has a small view of God because with God, all things are possible. Do you believe that this morning? With God, all things are possible. And I believe that the story is to be taken literally. And the chief reason for that is the prophet Isaiah and the prophet Ezekiel and, and, uh, and the writer of Hebrews, the apostle Peter, and most importantly, Jesus himself took it literally. He didn't treat it like some sort of story or a fable or some kind of an object lesson to teach us things about him. He referred to it as a matter of historic fact. It was an actual event that took place the story is told in uh, chapter six through nine of Genesis, which uh, time doesn't permit us to read in the whole, but I wanna read little excerpts of it throughout the, the sermon this morning. Um, and I wanna make some applications, but I wanna begin by just saying that the story opens up at a time when human population, the human population as a whole is just booming. 
As I said, we're 10 generations removed from Adam, who was told by God to be fruitful and multiply. And they did. They were fruitful and they were multiplying. Today, we have less than, than two people per family uh, unit. But back then, they were having many, many more kids than we have today. This was, this was farmhands and people that helped and they, they had lots of children. So the earth was, was being covered with, with them. Now there's also some, some thorny and difficult to interpret verses in the beginning of this chapter where reference is made to the sons of God and seeing the daughters of, of men were attractive and taking them as their wives. These verses talk about these, these creatures called the Nephilim, which were not, I don't mean to make them sound unhuman, but they were giant, mighty men. And there's two or three different predominant views on who all these people are. And I'm just gonna skirt them all and leave it up to you to go and read on your own what you think that is. Because it's, it's not germane to the story or to the points that I wanna make. I will say this one thing about it though, and that is God was not pleased. He was not pleased with these marriages and the outcome of these marriages and the people that came from these fair marriages. In fact, as the people grew more numerous on the earth, scripture tells us in chapter six, verse five, that the wickedness of man grew with it. And so this is, uh, this is a point that I wanna circle back to in a few minutes after we uh, spend a little bit of more time talking about the story in general, the, the parts that you are most familiar with. So as the narrative goes on, we read that the, the Lord's wrath and anger was so great that he said the following things from chapter six. Verse seven, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I made them. But he goes on to say in verse eight, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He was a standout. He fell in favor in the eyes of God. He was a righteous man, verse nine tells us, blameless in his generation. He walked with God. You know, recently, uh, not recently, but sometime in the, the last little while, I was at uh, a conference where I was asked the question, what do you want on your tombstone? Some of you maybe have been asked, what do you want to be said at your funeral? And this, this is an incredible thought, to be described in the way that Noah is described here as a righteous man, a blameless man who walked with God. When we read the word blameless, we, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't understand that to mean that he was sinless because he wasn't sinless. Uh, we know that that wasn't the case. That has never been the case for any man except for Jesus Christ, this idea of sinless perfection. So uh, only three chapters later, you will find Noah in a kind of compromising position that was embarrassing for him, drunk and naked on the floor of his tent. So that's another story I, I'll bid you read on your own. But his righteousness and his integrity were manifested in his daily walking with God. In this sense, that he resembled, in this sense, he resembled Enoch, 
which only, uh, only three chapters later, he, I'm uh, sorry, I'm, he was only a chapter earlier, uh, we hear the story of Enoch, and we know that Enoch was a man who walked with God, and the Bible says he was no more, that God just transported him into his presence. And so that was, that's an incredible thing. It's an incredible thing for Noah to be described in this way. He brought the Lord God into the center, into the focus of everything he did in his life. Noah's great faith was demonstrated in his belief of what God said to him and his subsequent obedience. Obedience was the marker of his faith. I wanna read chapter six, verses 13 through 22, which I think will be up on the screen here. So listen as I read these verses. I have determined to make an end to all flesh. So God says to Noah, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark is to be 300 cubits. Its breadth should be 50 cubits and its height 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, Noah, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you, and every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds, according to their kinds, and of the animals, according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground, according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you and keep them to keep, to keep them alive. And then he goes on and says this. Oh, uh, he goes on to say, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. So what's happening here? Noah heard the warning of this cataclysmic coming flood, and he believed what God was telling him. He believed it. He, he received God's commands regarding the flood, and he obeyed. Again, this is why Noah found favor in the eyes of God. He did all that God had commanded him. The first thing I want us to think about in light of this story as it's unfolding is, is I want you to contemplate what obedience looked like for Noah. Because I think obedience for Noah came at a high cost. There were consequences. And I wanna talk about those costs. First, I want you to consider the fact that Noah lost I'm certain of it, lost many of his extended family. His loved ones, his friends were lost and would perish in this flood. That had to be incredibly trying for Noah. 
And though the Bible doesn't specifically refer to this, I, I thought for sure it did when I was younger, the Bible doesn't specifically refer to, to, to Noah being the subject of ridicule and scoffers. How could that not be the case? Even though the Bible doesn't mention it, how could that not be the case? He was building a gopher wood boat that was one and a half football fields long and three, almost four stories tall and high and uh, as high as 75 feet, or excuse me, 75 feet wide. So this is enormous and enormous ship. Even by today's standards, it's a huge, huge ship. And why? Why did he do that? He did it because God told him this flood was coming. He did it during a time where people were paying no attention to God. They had pushed him completely out of their lives. They didn't believe there was a God or that, that he would have had any kind of warnings like this, but he was, he was being obedient to what God told him. I want you to consider some of these other challenges. How long do you think it took Noah to make this ark? There's an organization called Answers in Genesis which looks into the text itself to try to determine from context clues how long an event like this could have taken. And they said at a minimum, you're looking at 55 to 75 years to build this boat. Now, scripture isn't clear. We don't have a, a, a set number that's set for this, but I think it's safe to say, given the enormity of this building project, that the ark took a very, very long time to build. They didn't have power tools or trucks to move timber around or haul in all of this pitch that was spread all over the outside and the inside of the ark to waterproof it. They had none of that. They could, they could have easily taken all of 75 years, I think. It gave a, a lot of time. All this time building gave a lot of time for doubts and questions to arise. The kids saying, what is dad asking us to do? I mean, he must be crazy. It gave a lot of time for discouragement and for exhaustion. Obedience took quite a toll. Another question, did Noah play the role of prophet during this time, calling people to, uh, to repent and to avoid this coming disaster, this flood? I think all of these questions and, and are fair, and I think all of them are plausible. I think you might agree. Listen to Hebrews chapter 11, that passage in uh, the New Testament that's referred to as the hall of faith. It says in Hebrews eleven seven, by faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his family, or by his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of righteousness that is in keeping with faith. Sometimes obedience to God has costs attached. Sometimes we follow God in risky obedience, and these, these costs and these risks increase our faith 
they, they must have increased Noah's faith, and they also are pleased God mightily. I want you to consider, too, in Romans, uh, not Romans, excuse me, Genesis chapter seven, moving on, we see that Noah goes into the ark, and basically, there's seven days until this judgment begins in earnest. God said in chapter seven to Noah, go into the ark with your wife, your sons and their wives, and all the animals the Lord miraculously sent to him. There are clean animals taken aboard, seven pairs of these, and seven pairs of the birds, and a male and female of all the other kinds of animals, two and two, of all flesh in which there was the breath of life, 7.15 tells us. So seven days after Noah and his family and the animals entered the ark, it says in the passage that the Lord shut Noah and his family into the ark. You can almost hear the ominous sound of that door being slammed shut and sealed by God. And then in Genesis chapter seven, verse 16, it says this. The fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of heaven were opened and rain fell up on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. I wanna stop and think about that for just a minute with you. I wanna ask you to, to think back to the time when you were in the greatest of torrential downpours that you've ever experienced. We all have those stories, I think, when, when we've been in rain like we've never seen. About seven or eight years back, we experienced this kind of rain around my neighborhood. The rain fell so fast that there was kind of flash floods that just brought water in at such force that it just went and spilled up over our foundation and into our basement. It made a total mess of things. I've been part of downpours in Cambodia during rainy seasons where it feels like God is literally just pouring buckets of water down out of heaven. And it's a kind of an incredible thing to behold. Now imagine this sustained for 40 days and for 40 nights. And then add to that the fountains of the deep just belching up water during the whole time. We all know that there's, there's subterranean water. We, we dig wells. Some of you have been in, in underground caves with water in. There's all kinds of water under the earth. And what the Bible is telling us here is all that water gushed up while all the rain was pouring down on them. So much so that it says that the waters prevailed upon the earth for 150 days. At this point, I, I wanna say something about uh, the amount of time Noah and his family were on the ship. The, the amount of time they were on the ship was close to 370 days, over a year figured out from the Bible accounts. And I don't know about you, but I'm thinking, that's, that's a long, long time to be on that boat. And that's a, that's a lot of family togetherness, isn't it? I, I'm sure that there were times 
where they all felt like this is, this is just too much of a good thing. Uh, Noah, not only were, were they experiencing great amounts of family time, but that was a, a great deal of time to be together with all those animals as well. I was thinking about this uh, at some point over the last two weeks. Most of you uh, have, have been to the Harrisburg Farm Shore. And uh, it takes place in January. And it's, it's a bit of an assault on the olfactory glands, uh, if, you, if I'm going to admit it here. It, it's, uh, it, the place is just filled with animals, and you can tell the second you walk in the door. So add to the kind of animals that we all have experienced at the farm show, elephants and hippos and rhinos. And, and I'm going to move on in just a minute, but I just I want you to get an idea of how difficult and confronting it must have been to spend all that time on the, this floating farm show, if you will, that... Uh, that Noah was on. So we move back, we move on to chapter eight and we read about uh, after all this water has built up on the earth that was there for so long, we, be, we read that the waters begin to subside. God made a, a wind blow over the earth, it says, so it's like a massive hairdryer. And, and the fountains of the deep and the windows of the heaven were closed as if God was stopping a faucet off and, and draining all the water back into the places that it had occupied underground. So at the end of the 150 days that the ark touched down on Mount Ararat, Noah sends out, in verse six of chapter eight, he sends out a raven. And the raven was out for a very short time before it came back because there was no place for this raven to land. So verse eight goes on to say that next he sends out a dove. I don't know why the change of birds, but he changes to a dove this time. He knew animals far better than me. To see, he sent them out to see if the waters had subsided from the face, uh, face of the ground, but still the dove found no place to set her foot, the Bible tells us. So in verse 10, Noah waits another week for the water to recede, some, uh, some more before he released the dove again. And he was thrilled this time because the dove flies around and comes back ultimately still, but this time he comes back with an olive branch in his beak. And so Noah's encouraged by that. I'm sure the whole family was encouraged by that, but Noah waits yet another week and he sent out the dove again. But this time, you know the story, the dove does not return. I can only imagine how excited the family must have felt for that news. Noah knew by now that the waters had significantly dried up. And verses 15 and 19 tell us that God gave Noah the all clear for his family and all of the animals to disembark the ark. Sorry for the unplanned poetry there. I, I don't know I don't know, Noah, at what elevation uh, Noah was. If you were to go to the highest point of Mount Ararat today, that's some 16,000 feet up. I don't think he was that high. I don't think the ark landed at a place that, that was that high. But he had to come down from a high place, there's no doubt. 
I want us to consider another application here. Noah had been through an amazingly tough ordeal, amazingly difficult time, a time that, that must have taken so much of an emotional toll on them. Now, and I want you to hear this, now they were the last family left on earth. I mean, that's just, that's just crazy to think about. Can you imagine how this must have felt, being the sole survivors of this cataclysmic flood? There's, there's protection for us, isn't there, in, in numbers? That's why we have, we have towns and cities and we're not all living out in the middle of nowhere. We live around other people because in numbers there's protection and they had none of that. It was just the eight of them. They were all alone. But as we read on, it's clear they weren't all alone any more than you and I are all alone on the earth. They were very aware that God was with them because the first thing that we're told that Noah did after coming off the ark was that he built an altar. The next verses talk about this, this covenant that God reiterates with Noah. It's really very similar to the covenant that he forges with Adam back 10 generations earlier. But Noah immediately by impulse, comes off the ark and he builds an altar. Verse 20 tells us, taking some of every clean animal and every clean bird, and he offered them to the Lord, expressing his thanks to the Lord for his saving grace for him and his family. This explains, at least in part, why God had Noah bring seven pairs of these clean animals, these sacrificial animals with him on the ark. And I want you to think about this, just, just as God did for Abraham in providing a sacrifice later on, he did the same for Noah. He provided for Noah a sacrifice and he provides a sacrifice for us as well. And the scriptures tell us that God was pleased that Noah's response to all this tragedy was one of thankfulness to him, and he was pleased with his, with his sacrifice. God promised that in verse 21, hear these words, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have just done. So God's promising this, this devastation that you have just witnessed. I will never do that again. And even though Noah and the generations that would come after him and his sons would still be evil, they would still be sinners, God nevertheless was saying to them, I will bless you again with the fruit of your labors. Their, their harvests would return and they would again experience the seasons and, and all of that would resume again. And he told Noah and his sons to be fruitful and multiply, just like he had told Adam 10 generations earlier. Nine, uh, chapter nine, verse two says, God promised that he would put the fear of man into the beasts of the earth. You know, he's just released all these beasts. Of course, he's been with them, but I would imagine they were in some kind of cages, some of the, you know, tigers and lions and that kind of a thing. 
God said that he'd put the fear of man in them and he would give the animals were preserved on the ark to him for food for future generations. Behold, God said, I am establishing my covenant with you and yours. Never again will I flood the whole earth. And the sign of that covenant, we're all familiar with it, was the rainbow that he placed in the sky, the rainbow that we still see to this day in the midst of summer storms. It serves as an ongoing reminder of God's promises to Noah and to every generation after him. And it's an incredible blessing. So so how do these events fit into the history and theme of God's word? What does, it, what does it tell us about God's redemptive plan to rescue man? Another thing that we see in this story is that God is a just judge. And here's where I said I, we have to talk a little bit about judgment this morning. I've talk, talked a lot about the devastation and destruction of this worldwide global flood. And I think about one more, I want, I want to think about that one more time and just reiterate the fact that every living thing on the face of the earth has been wiped out. And here's the question. What kind of anger and wrath must God have had to bring this about? It it just seems so harsh, doesn't it? I I mentioned going back to those verses earlier in chapter six, and I wanna read read it in a, a different version for you right now, Genesis 6, 5. It says again, the heart of man was corrupt and his imaginations were continually evil and there was great wickedness and violence on the earth. A few verses later, again, we read this earlier, but I'm gonna read it again because there are heavy, heavy things said by God in these verses wherein the Lord said in verse six that he regretted that he made the crown of his creation, human beings. He regretted that so much so so that it grieved him to the heart. Stop and think about that for a minute, friends, because in these verses, we're getting a glimpse of the emotional response from a perfect and holy God when we sin. When we sin collectively, when we sin as individuals, God's heart is grieved. And uh, I I want us to be mindful of this, dear friends. God God is is grieved when we sin and when we rebel against him. He says to those people during the time of Noah that their waywardness of men and women all over the earth, their rebellion and their unwillingness to follow his ways and live as they were designed to live before God tore God up, and it left him grieving so much that he regretted creating them. I tell you, I pray often that God would give me his attitude towards my sin. I wanna repeat that. I pray often that God would give me his attitude and his mindset towards my sin. And I pray that all of us would do that. That's a good prayer for us to pray. So again, the state of mankind was that all the intentions of everyone's heart were evil continually. 
So again, I ask you the question, do you think that that condition of mankind back in Noah's time was justification for wiping out the whole of humanity except for Noah and his family? It was. He is God. He was dealing with a human race that was shaking its collective fist in the face of God and saying, we're in charge. We don't answer to you. We'll run our own lives and we'll do our own thing. Friends, we love to focus on God's holiness. We love to focus on his love and his mercy and compassion. And we all benefit by God's grace. But God cannot be a holy God without addressing sin. He must judge and punish sin. How many of you, uh, how many of us would feel when we lost or if we lost a dear family member to the violence of murder, if the courts just turned a blind eye and let the murderer go free? We, we would be furious. We would be so angry. We would, we would demand justice, and rightly so. And this is why we depend on judges in our country today to oversee a process whereby lawbreakers are punished for their crimes. However good our justice system is, with its flaws and shortcomings, we all know that, God's justice is perfect. Because of our, our wickedness and, and because he is the righteous judge, God had to be just. And here we see this representative judgment of God. Listen to Deuteronomy 32.4 describing God. It describes him as the rock, the changeless, immovable one. His work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity Just and upright is he. He can only be just. That's who he is. Isaiah tells us in chapter 28, be assured an an evil person will not go unpunished, but the offspring of the righteous will be delivered. Only an unjust judge would allow crimes to go unpunished. God is not unjust and our sin will be judged. For Noah, the flood of God on the earth that was over the earth, it served as an example of the judgment to come when Jesus returns in glory. I know this is gloomy to think about, but it's, you can't, again, talk about Noah without thinking about this judgment. Yes, we were and are worthy of that kind of judgment that God exacted on the earth during the worldwide flood. That was fully within God's right to do. But this story is also filled with pictures of God's representative divine redemption. Another thing we see in the story of Noah is, is, and the ark that is, is the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ. It's it's not all, obviously, about judgment and wrath. In this story, we see an example of what theologians call typology. Uh, This is is when we see something in a Bible story that so 
pictures what Jesus Christ, in this case, would do years down the line. It's so pictures that it becomes what the, the theologians call a type of Christ, a perfect picture of him. To those of us, uh, to, the, to those back in Noah's time, it was something they looked forward to. And they got a picture of what was to come through this story. For those of us on this side of the cross, we look back to it and we learn something more about what Christ did for us. If we're gonna take a guess of what in the story of Noah seemed most representative of Jesus Christ, what would you say it is? What part of the story most looked like Christ? In this story, and, and other theologians agree with this, the ark was the tool of redemption where a remnant of God-fearing followers of God were saved from the just judgment of God himself. So hear me, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you've turned from your sin or repented, as we say, from your sin, if you've put your full faith and trust in him, then as with Noah, we see ourselves as Christians who have heeded the warnings of the judgment to come and have been made aware of the way through the flood or the consequences of our sin and have been carried through that to receive our salvation. As I close our, our time this morning, I want to issue this final challenge from the story of Jonah. And I want to tell you that God will judge the earth again. There's a judgment to come. In 1 Peter 4, 5, it says, God is ready to judge the living and the dead. Some of you may recognize that from the uh, Apostles' Creed. We need to be, and this is what I want to challenge you with, we need to be, like Noah, preachers of righteousness. We need to speak truth to the culture around us to not be timid, but to stand forth and to share. We need to warn people about what is to come because friends, listen to this, hell is a real place. We don't like to talk about it much. It's kind of an ugly thing to talk about for sure, but it's a real place. We need to listen to the words in, in Matthew chapter 24, 37 through 39, hear these words. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. We need, we need to share this with everyone we know who has a set of ears on their head. We need to share that God has provided a way through this judgment yet to come. He says in, uh, in 2 Peter 3, 9, it is not his will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He provides the sacrificial lamb in Jesus to die in our place, and he's calling all men everywhere to repent, urging them to put their full faith and trust in him. And I wanna ask you this morning, 
Have you done that? Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus? Have you acknowledged your own sinfulness? And that's a hard thing for many of us to do. Have you, you acknowledged your own sinfulness and turned in repentance and, and faith to Jesus Christ, transferring your faith to him the way that you would transfer your, your faith to a, a parachute if you were 33,000 feet above the earth, or in the way you would transfer your faith to a, a, a rope when you were climbing or rappelling. In that same way, we transfer our faith and trust to Jesus. And, the, and, and because the moment that you sincerely do this, at that very moment, you'll become born again. That's what the scripture tells us. Changed at your very core, and you will, will more and more, over the course of time, become one who is a hater of sin, and you'll become one who is a lover of God. That is something to rejoice in today. I wanna, I wanna pray together, would you join me? Our Father and our God, we thank you for these words in uh, the book of Genesis, Lord, that tell us the story of one of your many faithful servants in the Bible, servant Noah. We thank you that he lived an exemplary life, that he walked with God, that he brought you to the center of his life. And we thank you and praise you, Father God, that you delivered him from that coming judgment that, that he experienced those many years ago. Father, all of us face a judgment that is probably even more powerful than the one that Noah experienced. That's coming. And Father, I pray that you would give us boldness to declare the way through that coming flood, though it won't be a flood. I pray that you would give us boldness, Lord God, and that you'd raise up people to share that good news. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.